Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome everyone to episode 71 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you? Hi, good. Um, planning to stay through the whole episode this week and um, I know dreams aren't things that anyone wants to hear about but I also had a dream last night that I was just at the start of this week which was leading up to a long weekend here in Australia and woke up this morning to realise I was already already in the long weekend. So, it felt awful and then I feel really good now, so I'm in a pretty good mood now. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I'm, in a good mood. I'm in a good mood too. I'm ready to go so we can start this thing off uh, the right way, I guess. <laughs> yeah, nice. Uh, we got some uh, Patreon shout-outs. Yes, thank you so much and welcome to Warren Sung, Gabes, Jared, Gary Broad, Jenny Steer, Anissa, Val, Shane Bakes, Anf Webb, and Mick Suarez. Thanks for the support, everyone. Much appreciated. The case we are discussing today contains extreme violence and discussion of drug use. Some of the content is difficult to hear. So, as always, we'd encourage our listeners to exercise self-care when listening to this episode. Today, we've got part five, the final instalment of the Melbourne gangland killings. Let's do it. March 2006, Supreme Court, Melbourne, Victoria. Justice Bill Gillard presided over the amphetamine trafficking trial of Tony Mockbell. Throughout, rumours persisted that one of the jurors had been bought and Tony was looking more confident by the day. Just days before the jury were sent to consider their verdict, Justice Gillard dismissed a member of the jury noting that the juror had done something which compromised his position and had caused the court great concern. Tony's body language changed after this, his previously buoyant demeanour now languishing behind an increasingly defeated facade, a facade that had soon turned to outright beaten when Tony learned of the Piranha Task Force's looming investigation into his alleged role in a gangland murder, that of Michael Marshall. The previously manageable sentence for drug trafficking was now dwarfed by the potential of a life sentence. Tony couldn't accept that. With Piranha still gathering evidence to support their case, 
federal police, led by agent Jared Ragg, who'd been relentlessly pursuing Tony for some time, made the request to have Tony's bail revoked. But without evidence to support their reasoning, Justice Gillard did not revoke bail just yet. Instead, Tony was free to go after his day in court on Friday, March the 17th, 2006. Outside court, he gave Piranha Detective Jim Coglin from the Asset Location Squad a new mobile number that he was using. Tony smiled at Jim as he scrawled the number on his palm. On Monday the 20th of March 2006, Tony didn't report for bail at South Melbourne Police Station and his legal team were forced to withdraw from the case. Tony had fled. Where exactly was anyone's guess? Tony, as he was known around town, was as generous as they came. He was known as the best tipper at restaurants he frequented, regularly gave mates $10,000 to punt away, telling them to pay him back if they won, and if he bumped into the back of your car while driving, it was no props. Tony would fix it all up with a smile, wad of cash, and a pat on the back. Always the amiable host, who'd offer a short black or Tony special pizza to even unexpected guests, He was gregarious and popular, a great acquaintance and, better yet, a friend. The high-flying, Ferrari-driving businessman ran restaurants, owned innumerable commercial properties, racehorses, salons, fragrance companies. He was a residential property developer. You name it, Tony Mockbell did it. But how did he do it? With a river of black cash from the illegal amphetamine trafficking trade, which he rose to the top of in Melbourne during the 1990s. It was a time where Tony lived the high life, gambling with the elite, dining in the best restaurants, staying at the most extravagant hotels, with the most beautiful women by his side. But it didn't start out that way for young Antonius Saji Mokbel, back in his native Kuwait in the mid-1960s. On the 11th of August 1965, Tony came into this world, the middle son of five children to his parents both of whom were devout Christians and illiterate. The Mockbell family spent some time in Lebanon before they immigrated to Australia when Tony was eight years of age, settling in the Brunswick area. Tony's father got work at the Ford Motor Vehicle Factory in Broadmeadows and his mum at the local meatworks. Tony and his siblings went to St Margaret Mary's Catholic School On his first day, Tony arrived without pens and pencils and was unable to speak any English, so he made up for it by acting the class clown. He went on to improve his English language skills in the verbal sense, but remained only semi-literate into adulthood. He went on to attend Brunswick and then Moreland High, playing footy alongside his brothers, Milad, Caballan and Horty, for the local East Brunswick Magpies during this time. Tony was stocky, short and not particularly athletic, but he was clever and scrappy and occasionally creative with some less-than-legal tactics on the field. From the age of 13, Tony worked part-time at a petrol station, a restaurant and as a barista. He worked hard for his family, who were living week-to-week on the poverty line. 
When he was 15, Tony's life took a turn for the worst when his father suddenly passed away. Without his dad around, any feelings of inadequacy Tony had with his poor literacy skills and little absorption of his education were amplified. Now, he really felt like he had something to prove and he was a kid in a man's world. He began working full-time as a dishwasher before going on to become a waiter and then work security, which was strange considering Tony's size. He was stocky but a pretty short bloke and not outwardly aggressive. That humour he displayed as a kid, however, had morphed into a cool, smooth facade as a young man. He was quite likeable and able to converse with anyone about anything. He was also quite persuasive and found himself able to convince others of his point of view without the need to get violent. When the world opened up to Tony as he hit adulthood, he realised that moving into business was the way he was going to make his mark and to make the kind of cash he wanted. He wanted status too, but with the cash, he could buy it. His first business foray was buying a rundown milk bar in Rosanna, and he operated this with his young partner at the time, Carmel, who he'd go on to marry and have children with. The pair worked day and night, seven days a week, to make ends meet, and sold the milk bar two years later at the same price they paid for it, It'd be the last time Tony missed out on a profit. In 1987, he bought an Italian restaurant in the outer eastern suburb of Baronia. His brother Malad was also a partner. He went on to buy the shop next door and then sold his interest in the restaurant but kept ownership of both buildings. He later bought and sold a bar and restaurant in Carlton, making a huge profit in the 12 months he held the property. He bought more and more property in the inner suburbs after this, establishing a common theme for Tony as his business interests grew. Wherever the money came from, he'd filter it through property investments to legitimise it, effectively laundering his illegally obtained funds. Tony had very few problems with the law early on. At age 18, he was arrested for a street brawl, but he copped only a fine for this, and at this stage he was still legitimate, running a pizza parlour with one of his brothers. But into the early 90s, Tony realised that making pizza bases for his Tony specials wasn't enough dough for him. The fastest way for him to get rich was in dealing drugs, not pepperoni, and betting it heavily on the horses thereafter for laundering and further profits. Tony had a gambling pension and a persuasive personality, which saw him befriend a number of top riding and training identities within the Australian horse racing community. He became the leader of a group dubbed the Tracksuit Gang, with tracksuits being worn to the races, quite the trend at this time. Tony and his pals, armed with thick wads of cash and tips that were incredibly accurate, as if they had information the rest of the punting public didn't have, made huge coordinated betting plunges on races, earning a fortune in the process. And while police knew of him in the basic sense, particularly through his work in the Tracksuit Gang, the enormity of his business ventures simply went unnoticed for a long time throughout the 90s. Tony received a few charges in the early 90s for possessing a pistol, bribing a judge and fencing stolen property, but no one had any idea of the sheer size of his burgeoning criminal empire, an empire he'd call the company. For Tony, it was gambling that made him tick. Trafficking and then manufacturing drugs was really just a means to an end. He needed more money to gamble and that was the fastest way to do it. He loved the thrill and the adrenaline rush chasing the winds gave him. He became addicted to it. And although he wasn't well educated, Tony was above average intelligence and his networking skills and likability played a huge part in his ongoing success. 
Tony put together a deal to import three tonnes of hashish and another to smuggle cocaine from Mexico inside of drilled-out candlesticks. Not all of these panned out. In fact, some of them even landed him in hot water with authorities and caused Tony huge losses. Ever the optimist? Tony soldiered on, all the while funneling his earnings into bricks and mortar, be it cafes, nightclubs or even brothels. In 1997, a drug lab of Tony's exploded, which seriously put him on the police radar. This house had been a methamphetamine manufacturing operation being run for Tony by a childhood friend named Paul Howden. Paul and another childhood friend we'll call the chef were instrumental in the cooking process for Tony. But for Paul, it all came to an end when he received a four-year sentence for this and received burns to around 30% of his body from the explosion. Tony's treatment of his friend, Paul, who the judge described as just the runabout of the lab, not the managing director, paid off. Paul kept his mouth closed and Tony off any charges. It turned out the Mockbell family owned the house next door, so it didn't take long for police to start connecting the dots. The amount of speed the lab produced was said to be worth close to $80 million, and it wasn't even close to Tony Mockbell's biggest going concern at that time. Gone were the days of him and his brothers hanging out at the Grove Cafe in Coburg, doing deals with the likes of the Morans and pushing a bit of marijuana from their mum's house. He was now driving luxury cars, buying rural farms and more and more racehorses. Some he named for a giggle, like Frosty the Snowman and My Cook. By the late 90s, Tony had corrupt customs officials on his books, assisting with the importation of ecstasy and cocaine. He was also importing precursor chemicals such as ephedrine and pseudoephedrine, using fragrance and cosmetic companies as legitimate fronts for doing so. Tony also got creative in some of his business dealings, telling the Morans, who he'd stored some chemicals for, that they'd lost a load during a mysterious fire. They accepted it, and Tony, ever the smooth talker, promised to make it up to them with other opportunities. But he kept the chemicals for his own production, as new labs of his sprung up across the suburbs. Oakley, Brunswick, Rye, Clayton... They were widespread and profitable. In 1998, Tony was caught and convicted of amphetamine trafficking. However, his charges were later dropped when his legal team were able to successfully argue that recordings of phone calls used as evidence only contained Tony discussing the manufacturing of amphetamines, not the trafficking of them. Tony continued plying his trade, his brothers helping him along the way, and it was a true family business. And with Paul Howden behind bars and later passing away during his sentence from heart disease, Tony needed a new head chef. And he found it in a childhood friend who will stick to calling the chef. He had lived overseas a few years before returning to Melbourne and he'd learnt much of his trade from his older brother who was a chemical engineer and another local maestro we'll call Robert who cooked for the Morans and was said to be the best in the Southern Hemisphere. The chef may have taken that title when Robert died in a plane crash, as he truly mastered the tried and tested red phosphorus and the productive but more volatile P2P cooking methods. He and his brother would go on to become integral parts of the company, and later, the chef became an integral part of the police case in bringing Tony down. Moving into the 2000s, and things just got bigger and bolder for Tony as he moved into pressing pills. 
After the death of Mark Moran, Tony had begun seeing his alleged mistress, Danielle Maguire, who worked for Tony at one of his hair salons. She was known as the pill press queen and no doubt had knowledge of the trade she could impart on the likes of Tony and co. On the surface, Tony mightn't have seemed like her type, but his persistence paid off, snaring the glamorous drug queen with his charms and seemingly endless supply of cash. Unfortunately for Tony, the police were now well on to his operations and had been busy flipping members of his crew to inform on him, which was a hard task as he paid quite well for loyalty. Operation Kayak was set up between state and federal police and it nabbed 10 high-profile drug traffickers. Tony, Carl and the Morans were all charged. Tony had been part of some big recent deals in 2000 and 2001, importing some 500,000 pure ecstasy tablets and a massive amount of precursor chemicals said to have been able to produce almost $2 billion worth of amphetamines. Tony made friends with Carl Williams around this time too, if we recall, and their budding new partnership would blossom once they got out of jail. Carl's focus would be on the Moran extermination program, which later broadened beyond the Morans into the Carlton crew and associates. Tony, however, claimed he wanted nothing to do with the gangland war. The killings were simply bad for business. Police would make allegations contrary to this, which we'll come to, but Tony was again hit by a stroke of luck when a number of drug charges were dropped due to corruption within the Vicpol drug squad at this time. Two officers, Stephen Payton and Malcolm Rosanese, were charged and convicted of drug-related charges and served time in jail. It turns out Stephen Payton had actually been a friend of Danielle Maguire's. He'd even schooled her somewhat when they worked together at a retail store, teaching her surveillance methods and how an investigation might pan out. When Chief Commissioner Christine Nixon came in, however, the entire drug squad was disbanded and the new division called the MDID was formed. And joining that squad was none other than Detective Sergeant Paul Dale, who we've spoken about previously. Tony, who was said to have police on his payroll within this new squad to tip him off should a raid be scheduled, was back out on the street. He quickly soared to the top of the pill empire in Melbourne, stamping his own brand of pills, which were being gobbled up across city dance floors every weekend. But his success and those who helped him didn't go unnoticed, and many wanted a part of it. One person was said to be Nick Radev, who, as discussed in an earlier episode, had plans to kidnap a cook that Carl and Tony were using for his own purposes. Police alleged that Tony was part of that initial meeting and potentially the broader plan, but if he was, it was never proven, and he certainly kept a low key throughout it all, most likely taking off after the Brighton Baths part of the meeting and not venturing to Coburg as others may have. The feds were persisting with trying to charge Tony for the earlier mentioned Mexican candlestick deal. They had an informer who'd passed on intel, which enraged Tony. He wanted to know who it was. The feds hadn't pinned him just yet for what he considered a measly three kilos of cocaine, but it was still enough to land him a decent sentence should charges eventually stick. Meanwhile, the company's pills were being pushed all across town, making the Mockbell Empire a fortune. Others in the trade were concerned around this time as a new wave of pills was being sold and undercutting their business. At first, many thought it was Tony. It wasn't. We know it was Carl. But such was Tony's friendship with Carl and so big and profitable were his own operations, he simply didn't care. 
His income was dwarfing that of Carl's and probably anyone else's in the underworld at this time. Tony's business ventures had forced him to set up a penthouse suite in the city as he had so many meetings. He had to be closer than the family home would allow him to be. At least that was his story. In reality, the family home was a stone's throw from the CBD and he simply wanted to live with his mistress, Danielle Maguire, which he did, effectively leaving Carmel and his kids at home in the process. But Danielle would soon be hit with drug charges herself and received a three-year sentence for it. This left Tony free to do what he liked and with all the money in the world, that's probably what he did. But while the gangland war raged on, Tony was only able to keep out of it so much. In the end, he'd become involved much as he mightn't have liked to be. When a supposed peace meeting between two Western Australian bikies and Tony went pear-shaped one day, things between Tony and the Carlton crew hit an all-time low. Previously, he'd always gotten along well with Mick and Mario, having betted at many of their games in the years gone by. But Tony thought Mick hadn't done his duty. He was meant to ensure this thing went peacefully, and when it didn't, he did nothing to step in and make it right. Tony was offended by the way the whole thing went down and annoyed at the arrogance of those involved. Yet he maintained, at least on the surface, a facade of neutrality as Carl and his pals were rolling around trying to shoot every Moran they could. Tony's biggest dream he had around this time, his magnum opus, that had seen him go straight once and for all, was a high-rise development that was going to be residential and commercial and it was described as quite a unique-looking building, a winged keel-style development. Unfortunately, it never went ahead. Tony couldn't get council approvals. Nothing fell into line for him on this. The screws of the Piranha Task Force were tightening, as the Asset Recovery Squad, led in the Mockbell case by Sergeant Jim Coglin, continued to try and sift through the innumerable Mockbell family assets and shelf companies in efforts to cripple the company's finances. Detectives investigating from the drug angle too were making headway with informants, managing to flip both the chef and Terence Hodson prior to his murder to establish a number of locations of Tony's drug labs and pill presses. All of the Audis, Ferraris and Mercedes in Victoria couldn't keep Tony out of the next problem he'd become embroiled in. Firstly, the murder of Mick Marshall, for which an informer had fingered Tony as the man who ordered the job, despite it being Carl who organised it. Tony requested and financed it, this informer, and later the police, alleged. And then secondly, the murder of Louis Moran. Another informer told police Tony had financed this hit too, with Carl again being the organiser. Neither of these allegations would stick due to lack of evidence. Tony would eventually be acquitted of the Moran murder, and charges dropped prior to trial for the Marshall case. Still, the suspicion of his involvement and pending prosecution would play a big part later in the tale. Tony's brothers were constantly in the crosshairs now too, and all would eventually end up serving some time. Along with his income streams being interrupted by constant police raids, Tony was now experiencing a number of his assets being frozen. His previously A-grade credit rating with the National Australia Bank, who'd lent him nearly $6 million between 1985 and 2001, mattered very little now. Tony was eventually arrested in August 2001 over a chemical importation scheme. He made bail, but bit by bit, Piranha kept chipping away at his assets, seizing Mockbell properties, cash hidden in PVC pipes in gardens, watches and cars. 
Yet Tony's lifestyle didn't seem to take a downward turn. He was renting a luxurious penthouse in Port Melbourne at $1,250 per week, ordering gourmet meals to be delivered to his house where he'd tip generously as always. But the I Fillet Surf and Turf, one of Tony's regular $100 meals he'd have on any given weeknight, wasn't going to continue forever. Eventually, the screws tightened enough when the relentless Jared Rag and the AFP were able to make charges stick for the Mexican candlestick affair, again due to the testimony from an informer. And to make bail, one of the Mockbell family homes had to be put up as $1 million surety. This was actually the home of one of his brothers, which was in his wife's name. She had to sign the surety, effectively taking one for the team. She'd later lose the home when Tony fled. Tony, feeling the increasing number of eyes on him in recent times, had begun distancing himself from daily operations, running everything to do with the business through proxies now, not even his brothers, as he wanted them protected. His buddy Carl had been locked up and all the killing had stopped, at least that's what everyone thought, until Mario Condello was gunned down the night before his trial in 2006. Tony was set to face trial for the cocaine importation charges, trumped up as they were shortly too. But he'd also learnt another recent fact that would ultimately change things. He was now in the piranha crosshairs for the Moran and Marshall cases too. Tony couldn't believe it and denied any involvement in either, maintaining that this whole killing thing was bad for business. Indeed, it appeared now Carl was responsible for the shooting of his mate, Willie Thompson, but he hadn't ordered the reprisal for it. Carl ran his own race on that. Informers working for police now, however, said otherwise, and Tony was now potentially looking down the barrel at a life sentence. The previously manageable trafficking charge was now looking like the least of his troubles. He knew things had turned when the feds asked for the early revoke of bail. It was time to put his plan into action, a plan he'd been considering and organising for a while. And on the 20th of March 2006, he did just that. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. It was late May 2007, and for Detective Sergeant Jim Coglin and Federal Agent Jared Ragg, it had been a long seven years investigating Antonius Mockbell. From the early morning raids of his Port Melbourne penthouse in his initial arrest in 2001, 
where a scantily clad Danielle Maguire had asked how her friend and their corrupt ex-colleague was, to now a Spartan meeting room in Athens, Greece. Owned by the Greek anti-drug division, the room was engulfed by a smoky haze and the smell of espresso coffee. Jim and Jared had to convince the locals to help them. They had word that Fat Tony was in Athens. He was Australia's most wanted fugitive, but that mattered little to the Greeks. The guy was a drug trafficker, they had their own problems, and had denied a request to have Melbourne surveillance officers flown into Athens. With three million people in Athens and Jared and Jim not knowing Tony's address, his friends' movements, or even how he looked these days, the Greek police were posturing less than enthusiastic body language. Jim, in a last-ditch effort, turned to a nearby colleague and asked him how his family was in semi-fluent Greek. Lieutenant Colonel George Saxionis, head of the anti-drug division, downed his cigarette and shot up from his desk. Why wasn't I told this man speaks Greek? When the crowd of officers responded with shrugs, Jim Coglin was left to converse directly with the Lieutenant Colonel. Channeling every shred of Acropolis now he had in him, Jim told Saxionis he'd married a Greek woman, ate Suvalakis, drank short blacks and loved all things Greek. And Tony Mockbell was a danger to Greece and the people of Athens. He wanted him caught. Saxionis asked Jim where his father-in-law hailed from, and when Jim answered, Saxionis walked over to the Piranha detective, picked him up and kissed him. That's where I come from. That's my village, he said. Now, we catch this man, Mockbell, for Jim. They had the Greeks on board for one week. Now they had to make it happen, as Inspector O'Brien had said to Jim upon him and Jared departing Melbourne for Athens, don't come back without him. It had been a long 12 months trying to find him, and both Jim and Jared could see an end in sight, an end that seemed highly unlikely when Operation Magnum began back in March 2006. Fleeing during the middle of Melbourne's Commonwealth Games turned out to be a good move by Tony, and he had more up his sleeve. Some thought he was dead at first, but most thought he'd fled. Sightings flooded in, Lebanon, Colombia, Dubai. His gun-toting bodyguards had been in a shootout in Turkey. He'd fashioned a luxurious shipping container and was fleeing inside of that. He'd gotten cutting-edge plastic surgery and was unrecognisable to even his own mother now. Or maybe he was in Egypt, posing as a priest. The theories came in thick and fast, but the truth, while still quite clever, wasn't as spectacular. No one thought Tony was still in Australia, let alone Victoria, yet he'd travelled just two hours to a small town called Bonnie Doon. Known for its serenity in the Australian cult classic The Castle, Tony took a leaf out of the Kerrigan family's book and holed up with his old friend of his who we'll simply call George. George lived with his wife and daughter on their farm property on Dry Creek Road in Bonnie Doon. George, who had previously looked after horses and pulled beers at the nearby Mandample pub, had more recently tried his hand at trafficking cannabis. He had smoked a bit of it too, and as such offered a rather mallow getaway for Tony. George had began cooking amphetamines for the company sometime earlier, with his income reliant on the drug kingpin, he could hardly turn Tony away. His wife and daughter didn't know Uncle Tony's true identity at first, but over time, it's very possible George had to divulge their position, as discussing the Tony special they'd eaten the night before might have posed a problem in the sleepy town on the shores of Lake Eldon. Tony spent his days continuing to run the company as the federal police launched the manhunt to recapture him 
and Vicpol continued trying to freeze the seemingly innumerable Mockbell assets. He'd narrowed down his contact list, speaking only through a few select members of the company board and some trusted advisors who were helping him in his escape plan. With the general consensus being he'd fled overseas, physical surveillance was placed second to electronic. Danielle was able to visit Tony and Bonnie Doon, the couple patching up their recent feud when Danny thought Tony had been having it off with his lawyer, Zaragard Wilson. Whether high on love or the fumes from the nearby speedboats and jet skis ever present on the Bonnie Doon foreshore, Tony and Danielle conceived a child during one of her high country visits. A ramshackle tin hut and a few joints, a far cry from their previous Duck Larange and Penthouse Suite in Port Melbourne, still, it was better than a concrete cell at Port Phillip. That was somewhere Tony never wanted to see again. Other visitors came on occasion, company workers to receive operational orders, couriers to drop off large sums of cash, and one time someone with a Tupperware container full of Mother Mockbell's tabbouleh. With the airport terminal swarming with police, electronic surveillance, computer systems and biometrics more advanced than ever, Tony needed a better escape plan than simply running a bleach comb through his thinning hair and growing a beard to evade authorities before hopping on a commercial flight. The plan was nautical and his point man was an old pensioner we'll call Stavros who hailed from Reservoir. Stavros and Tony had met many years ago while gambling. The old pensioner was loyal, loved to punt and needed the money Tony was offering but most importantly he had overseas connections in Greece. Tony didn't know a lick of Greek, but he looked Mediterranean, and Stavros had the local connections to get him and Danielle set up someplace where he'd be able to resume a semi-normal life while running the company remotely. Stavros assisted organising the Greek end of things and the yacht Tony would need to make his escape. They found an 18-year-old 17.4-metre yacht named Edwina at a cost of $323,000, Tony paid a further $70,000 for modifications to the vessel while it was still docked in Sydney, adding a satellite phone and a second toilet. A crew of three Greek sailors were employed for what they were told was a wealthy Melbourne businessman who wanted to take a relaxing sea voyage to Greece. The Edwina was shipped again at an extensive cost from Sydney to Fremantle on the west coast at the behest of the Greek sailors who didn't want to sail the Bass Strait and take on the Great Australian Bight for some rich bloke with more dollars than cents. The friendly sailors, being paid $50,000 a pop, clearly learned the reality of the situation in the days prior to leaving their moorings. The businessman was a fugitive who had to get out of the country. The sailors became more guarded with locals and visited Bunnings for last-minute supplies to construct a makeshift hidey hole for Tony to hide under the floor in the master cabin. Tony and some of his loyal company compatriots threw a last-minute party for themselves and the sailors, hiring the services of a local escort agency before Edwina pulled away from the shore around 10am on November the 11th, 2006 sailing from the Fremantle Sailing Club into the high seas. Customs officials who checked the boat found the paperwork of the three Greek sailors to be in order and there was no one else on board, at least no one they could see. Tony never found his sea legs, vomiting every day in the coming weeks as they sailed across the Indian Ocean to the Seychelles, through the Suez Canal and across to the Mediterranean. 
Bribing officials almost certainly played a major role in the journey's success, as the crew went from the Maldives to the Greek island of Syros. A short ferry ride later, and a black four-wheel drive was waiting for Tony, courtesy of his pensioner friend Stavros, who'd done many trips to Greece in the preceding months to get this leg of the trip organised. Tony was home free, his new life in Greece awaiting him. All there was left to do was get business on the straight and narrow and get a pregnant Danny and her 12-year-old daughter over next. Police had followed Danielle Maguire overseas, chasing her through half of Asia as she took them on a wild goose chase. She never led them to Tony. But eventually she took a trip that interested police. An Emirates flight to Dubai in July of 2006 with her 12-year-old daughter before they went on to Greece under the false name of Busbridge. Were they joining Tony? For police, there was no way to know. But in time, they'd learned that Danielle and her daughter indeed joined Tony at their new place in Athens. In December, she gave birth to another daughter, the one her and Tony had conceived in Bonnie Doon. She had her in the apartment with a doctor and a midwife on hand. For Tony Mockbell, the international fugitive, life was going well. Using an alias in Greece, he was running his company back in Australia and living a normal family life in an upmarket beachside neighbourhood akin to, say, Brighton in Victoria. How were police going to catch this guy with all of the international jurisdictional hurdles? When, if ever, would the music play for Tony Mockbell and his dream run come to an end? Sooner than he hoped was the answer, and ironically, it was actually a musician within his own company who'd be responsible for striking the first chord of Tony's swan song. A Victorian police officer who was a hobby musician had come across a bloke from the local scene who told an interesting post-gig tale about one Tony Mockbell. This guy, who we'll call Ringo, happened to know a bit about the company, predominantly through his contact with a guy named Bart Rizzo. Bart was the unofficial accountant for the company, and somehow he had used Ringo's name on some dubious international electronic money transfers. Rizzo then took it a step further by asking Ringo for his current and expired passports for our mate overseas. Ringo was fast getting the shits with being used to protect someone overseas. He had a pretty good idea who this someone was and was ready to talk about it to the police and do what he could to make things right. Ringo had taken drugs himself but lost a brother to an overdose. He wasn't a fan and wasn't about to protect the biggest drug trafficker in the country who was currently on the lam overseas. So Ringo became registered human source 3030 and was sent back into the company to gather intel. And gather it he did, with much gusto, and only a short time into his stint as a spy, Ringo hit the muzzleload. When Bart Rizzo nipped off to the toilet one time, Ringo whipped out a USB and downloaded a whole bunch of files from his computer, He gave it to police, and lo and behold, it had detailed records of drug quantities, quality control systems, and cash distribution. And to top it off, Ringo also procured a bunch of phone numbers of company members, which proved to be invaluable to the police. One of the numbers was a clean line Tony used to keep in touch with his Victorian subordinates. Police tapped the line, and on May 15, 2007, heard the long-lost fugitive calling home to one of his subordinates. They discussed Tony's current business, which included some witness intimidation for upcoming trials, a $1 million war chest he was currently saving for defence lawyers, and that Danielle and he were having a rough trot, fighting every day. 
She was becoming disenchanted with the place and wanted to go somewhere else. Tony reckoned the company would be netting $500,000 per week, he told his counterpart, and that he'd ordered toupees from two of the finest Italian wig makers. Then he said he was having a coffee at Starbucks at the Glafada Piazza. Jim Coughlin, one of the eight sergeants Detective Inspector Jim O'Brien had on the Mockbell arm of Piranha, recognised the region. He'd holidayed there, and to confirm it, people in the background were heard speaking fluent Greek. Jim Coughlin was sent alongside Jared Ragg to Athens. Not without difficulty, as his passport had expired, Jim had to get a renewed within two days or risk being replaced. He made it, just in time, to meet Jared at Tullamarine Airport for the 9.30pm Emirates flight on May the 25th. And that's where we circle back to Jim and Jared making their hopeless pitch to local police, which ended in their embracing of Jim Coughlin's Greek connection and subsequent gesture of goodwill. Tony's calls were now being live-fed to Jim's mobile too, so they continued to gather intel on where he might be. Glyphada was a big region of Athens with around 100,000 locals and potentially double that factoring the influx of summer tourists. Perfect for Tony, not so much for surveillance. Police ran down places where he might be, the local track, a supermarket when a live feed picked up he might be buying nappies, but they couldn't pin him down. Further calls filled police in that Danielle was considering a trip home and that Tony was currently at the local pool taking their six-month-old daughter swimming. When police arrived at the only pool offering drown-proofing lessons for kids under five on a Sunday morning, Tony was nowhere to be seen. The Athens traffic no doubt stalling the scrambling officers. But then, when Tony called home to request some tile and benchtop samples be posted to a P.O. box, police learned his current alias. Addressed them to Stephen Pappas, he told his colleague Joe. It was good news, but time was fast running out for Jared Ragg and Jim Coughlin, Greek goodwill only went so far. At 9.20am on June the 5th, 2007, the final couple of days of their surveillance, Tony made a call, which Jim was listening to intently. The guy he called didn't answer, but then another call came through for Tony, and this caller wanted to meet him around 11am within the next couple of hours. And they spelled out the location for police, the Delphinia Cafe. A relaxed place, quite big, with fresh fish and great service, The Delphinia was packed when police arrived and the surveillance operatives couldn't see anyone who stood out, so they sent an undercover officer in as a customer to get a closer look. A man sitting at the rear of the cafe wearing a baseball cap with longish hair poking out from underneath was chatting to a colleague. He became noticeably concerned when uniformed police walked in and arrested their own undercover operative in a theatrical fake immigration raid designed to flush Tony out. It worked. The man in the cap looked growingly concerned and slipped towards an exit, but returned to his seat once the situation calmed down. But the police returned and went straight for him this time. The man was pale and sweaty as he handed over his Australian passport and New South Wales driver licence in the name of Stephen Pappas. Tony Mockbell had told his friends over the phone that this was the last place they'd ever look for him. The man, some called Octopus back in Melbourne because he had his tentacles and everything, had been found at a cafe serving a grilled version of this very mollusk. Athens Surveillance Police radioed through to an anxious Jim and Jared who were holed up with Lieutenant Colonel Saxionis. They had him. Despite his attempts to alter his disguise, underneath his cap, 
Tony was sporting what was later described as an absolute shocker of a toupee that looked like something he'd scraped off the road in Bonnie Doon, not ordered from a prestigious Italian wig maker. Thinking he was just being detained for immigration reasons, Tony got the shock of his life, but tipped his hat to Jim and Jared when they went in to see him in the holding cell an hour later. I don't know how you did it, but however you did, it was bloody good, he told them. Tony went on for around 45 minutes about how he was going to return and make a deal. His delusions of grandeur evident when he referred to the director of the DPP by his first name, saying that he and his QC, Con, could easily sort it out if Simon Overland just dropped the bullshit murder charges. Look, I'm just a drug dealer. Why would I want to murder anyone, Tony said. He answered his own question only minutes later when he told Jared that he knew where he lived, about his family, and even the code to his alarm system. Jim responded by asking why he hadn't asked about Danny or the baby as yet in the past three quarters of an hour. Didn't he want to know where they were and if they were okay? I was getting to that, an agitated Tony replied, before requesting embassy assistance for the pair, despite the millions he had and had cost the taxpaying public in hunting him down. Danny and the girls were fine, it would seem. She even managed to get one of Tony's toupees back to Melbourne, convincing a Greek clerk to hand over the evidence to her by possibly leaving a few buttons undone in the right places. Police later recovered the toupee, which had the serial number burned off with acid. Buying time was Tony's next move. Instead of paying a small fine, he elected to do jail time for the local passport charges, while the Australian authorities toiled away in the background on his extradition. It didn't pay off, as he was held beyond this sentence pending the extradition. Tony called the Piranha Task Force, speaking with Jim O'Brien, to tell him that he'd come back if the murder charges were dropped. But these charges were all important in the extradition case to get him back. They weren't simply going to be dropped, even if they didn't stick in the long run. Tony's yacht, which had been docked this whole time, still hadn't been discovered, and he had plans to flee again once he got himself out of the dreadful Dallas prison. But his offer of a 1 million euro bribe wasn't enough. Officers in Greece had received a 3 million euro bribe from another wanted man only weeks earlier. It seemed that Tony wasn't a big fish in the vast oceans of Europe as he was in the small pond of Victoria. At a cost of $450,000, some 11 months later, after he'd exhausted all of his options to avoid extradition, Tony was finally brought back to face the music. He had already been found guilty and sentenced in his absence for the cocaine trafficking offence, 12 years with a minimum of nine. Now, in May 2008, he was facing murder charges and a number of other drug offences. Many wouldn't stick, as we know, with the Mockbell legal team ever ready to find the smallest of loopholes to wriggle out of any charge possible. And while he was acquitted over the murder of Louis Moran, he'd ultimately cop a 30-year sentence for drug-related offences with a 22-year minimum. Although police had destroyed his drug operations in the past few years, bringing the company to its knees and seizing close to $55 million in Mockbell-owned assets, it looked like the 46-year-old Tony would be out in time for his retirement years. That's if his health didn't get him first. Earlier in the year, Tony had suffered a mild heart attack in prison and had to change his diet and health regime accordingly. Prison, it was said by health officials, was going to be hard for Tony. He wasn't suited to it like many of the institutionalised inmates. 
Danielle had since moved on, and for now, the concrete cell he'd feared returning to all this time was home, and would be for the foreseeable future. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. During the time Tony had been charged, tried, fled, been hunted and finally brought back to Australia, Carl Williams had been housed in the Acacia unit of Barwon Prison. The secure unit housing high-risk prisoners had taken much of Carl's spirit over the past few years, as he had spent innumerable hours in court and with the Piranha Task Force. He had been charged and convicted of drug trafficking to begin with, copping a seven-year sentence, but later, in 2006, he received a 27-year sentence for the murder of Michael Marshall. His money, connections and the blonde tips he regularly had dyed to maintain his youthful appearance had all run out. Many of his former crew, now inside on charges of their own, had struck deals with police and prosecutors, putting Carl squarely in the frame for a number of further murders. 2007 saw Carl cop a deal to plead guilty to the murders of Jason and Louis Moran, Mark Malia and the conspiracy charge in relation to Mario Condello. He received life sentences for two, 25 years each for the other two, and if all went well, Carl might just get out when he was in his 70s. While things looked bleak, there were some positives. Charges in the case of Mark Moran were dropped in exchange for his aforementioned guilty pleas, and Vic Pohl had agreed to drop a number of serious charges against his father George, speak with the ATO about clearing some of George's tax issues and even pay Dakota's school fees. So the deal was somewhat sweet, but it hinged on one final thing Carl had to give the police, and that was the details on one of their own, a carrot Carl had dangled some time earlier. Between then and now, much of Carl's youthful exuberance disappeared after separating with Roberta and having a few young blonde girlfriends who enjoyed visiting and corresponding with the now national celebrity, Carl had hit rock bottom when his mum, Barb, had taken her own life in November of 2008. Unable to cope with the pain of effectively losing both of her sons and George being holed up in Port Phillip, Barb had scrawled a brief sorry note in eyeliner pencil before taking a copious amount of sleeping pills and passing away. 2008 couldn't get much worse for Carl, so towards its end, in hopes of securing the aforementioned deals, Carl agreed to travel to an undisclosed location to talk with his police handlers about what he knew they wanted. Dale, Dale, Dale is all you want. All you want is Dale, Carl said. And indeed, it seemed they did. Simon Overland had since taken over from Christine Nixon as Vic Pohl's chief commissioner and he intended on stamping out police corruption and priority one was solving the murders of Terence and Christine Hodson. 
Carl and George were both secretly couriered to Swan Island, a top-secret facility used to train SAS members. Here, they were given the royal treatment for a week as police recorded Carl's tales about Detective Sergeant Paul Dale. During this time, Carl and George were given the works in terms of food, burgers, Chinese, pizza, you name it, and it was rumoured treats of a different kind may have been on the menu, something George would later deny, stating it was just the food. Carl said he had met Paul Dale in 2002 at the Brunswick Club. Their relationship was occasional meet and greets, where Paul allegedly offered to keep Carl out of harm's way for a price. Carl claimed he made payments of between two dollars and $5,000 to Paul Dale when they met. Carl further alleged that one time when he and Paul met at a swimming pool, Paul offered for him and a colleague to sort out Jason Moran for the small price of $400,000. Carl said he was dreaming, but they continued to meet as some of the info Paul provided had been useful in his business associations. He'd sorted out a few rats from the pack over the time, courtesy of the relationship. So when after his arrest in 2003, Paul Dale approached Carl to organise the murder of Terence Hodson before his committal to testify about the drug house burglary, Carl was open to the idea and the money. $150,000, Carl alleged, Paul Dale paid him to organise the hit, and Carl engaged the services of Rodney Collins to do it. Neither he or Paul Dale had anything to do with each other, Carl was the middleman. The evidence Carl put forward was extremely attractive to Victoria Police, and they agreed to pay Dakota's private school fees, settle a three-quarter of a million dollar tax bill for George, and give Carl a potential 17-year reduction in his sentence. Carl might finally see the light of day again and be young enough to enjoy it. On the 13th of February 2009, Paul Dale was arrested at the petrol station where he was working in northeast Victoria for the Hodson murders. A committal hearing was scheduled for March 2010. Now all Carl had to do was hold up his end of the bargain, taking to the witness box at trial, and his deals would go through. In the meantime, things had gotten smoother for Carl in Acacia Unit 1. He was now able to spend more time with a couple of close inmates of his choosing. First was George, his dad, who had been transferred there to be with his son. The second was a stranger choice, a violent prisoner named Matthew Johnson, who was said to be the leader of a prison gang. The general, as he was known, had killed before and had recently been involved in the beating of another killer named Greg Brazel. During the attack, in which inmates were said to have used a sandwich press, Brazel had retaliated by using the stem of the seat from an exercise bike to defend himself. The general might have been taking notes, but on the face of it, he and Carl had been observed getting along famously and he had no links to the gangland wars. Perhaps Carl thought having a feared man like Matty Johnson alongside him would prove beneficial. Whatever the case, he clearly trusted him. Prison officials and Vic Pohl, by and large, agreed, with only a couple of officials voicing concerns that Matt Johnson posed a risk to Carl's safety. When George finished his sentence and was released, that left a spot open. Carl repeatedly sought for his old pal, Tony Mockbell, to join him. Tony and he had crossed paths again since Tony's extradition, and while they had some tensions, they were still mates. Tony had wondered whether Carl might lag on him, but Carl had proved staunch in that regard. Tony still had a number of pending trials, however, including his murder trials. So having him sidled up next to Carl, who police hoped might still prove useful in Tony's prosecutions, wasn't a good idea. 
The request was denied. Instead, Carl's next pick was Tommy Ivanovic. His young faithful mate on the outside, who had served a number of years already, was accepted. Tommy hadn't spoken a word about anything he knew of Carl and his operations and was an understandable choice to come in as company for Carl alongside Big Maddie. But the rumours that Carl had been talking with police spread throughout Barwon. The secret meeting in Swan Island had been leaked to the Herald Sun, who'd published an article about it. By early 2010, it was common knowledge that Carl was being taken away for secret meetings in the hopes of getting his sentence slashed even further. He couldn't hack doing the time, the rumours had it, and would begin dogging on everyone to save himself and his family. True or not, it didn't do Carl any favours. Matt Johnson was known to have been a strong detester of police informers, but according to George, was fine with Carl lagging on a corrupt copper. On the 19th of April 2010, the Herald Sun published another Carl-related article on the front page entitled, You Pay Killer's School Fees. Enough info had made its way out by now for one journalist at least to back up the rumours that had been circulating for some time. Carl had a visit with George that morning and said he was fine with the article. He was used to the publicity by this stage but wanted to keep doing the right thing to end the rife corruption as he saw it. Back in Acacia Unit 1, observant guards might have seen Matthew Johnson removing his foam mattress and bringing it out into the day room and resting it over an exercise bike. It was a common move to air out these sweat-logged mattresses. What wasn't common and went unseen was Matt Johnson unscrewing the stem of the bike seat. At 12.48pm, Carl was back in the day room, sitting at a table and reading the paper as he usually did. Tommy was a few metres away in the kitchenette, making a cuppa, his back to Carl. Matt Johnson stood in the doorway of his cell, the hulking bald man metres behind an oblivious Carl, the bike stem clasped in both of his hands. He walked forward and delivered a massive blow to the side of Carl's head, following up with another seven almighty strikes as Carl dropped and lay motionless on the floor next to the table. Matt then covered Carl's head with a towel and dragged his body back into his cell and closed the door. Tommy hadn't moved from his spot in the kitchenette, not seeing a thing but surely hearing it. He called his sister in the minutes after the attack and then a colleague of his own on the outside, Rocco Arico, who we've spoken about before. I'm shocked, mate. Something really terrible has happened. I think Carl's dead, mate. Maddie just went crazy, Tommy said to Rocco. What happened, Rocco replied. I don't know. The screws haven't come yet. I think he just started threatening Maddie. I just heard some noise and turned and saw Carl on the floor. Indeed, with all of the security in the Acacia unit, the guards hadn't observed Carl's merciless beating on CCTV. The once state-of-the-art cameras now old and shithouse, with grainy images refreshing only every 45 seconds. 27 minutes after the attack, easily long enough for Carl to bleed out should there have been a slim chance he might have survived, Matt Johnson alerted a female prison officer, noting that Carl had hit his head. The news of the Code Black and Carl's death spread throughout the media and Barwon prison like wildfire. How had the highest profile prisoner in Victoria, in the most secure facility, been bludgeoned to death by another inmate? Matthew Johnson was charged with Carl's murder. He later claimed self-defence, stating that he'd heard Carl had wanted to kill him with a billiard ball stuffed into a sock. A jury didn't believe him, and he received another life sentence, which he was already serving anyway. This one was practically for free. 
Throughout Barwon, the barks of inmates imitating dogs could be heard, as Matt Johnson told police, after a long period of no commenting, that he'd been told by someone close that Carl was going to do him in, so he got in first. Carl had been in the best shape of his life, having lost over 30 kilos since his incarceration, but jailhouse justice had been dealt and nothing could save him from the brutal end he suffered. That is, except for adequate CCTV and intervention from prison staff. Maybe they could have, maybe not. Talk of a corrections conspiracy was suggested after this. Vic Pohl had lost their star witness in the Hodson murders and charges against Paul Dale were dropped. It was the second murder that had benefited Paul Dale and seen charges against him dropped, so suggestions that he was potentially involved in Carl's murder also came out. These were denied by Paul himself and Victoria Police, and as such, Paul Dale remains a free man and a man who's had to battle long and hard against the allegations made against him. He's never been convicted of any criminal offences and is entitled to the presumption of innocence, we should note. Rocco Arrico, who served his time and is now reported in the media as a drug lord in his own right, while he claims to be a property developer, was thrown into the spotlight after Carl's murder too. Some reports suggested there was motive there had he, Tommy and potentially anyone else who was still alive been implicated by Carl in the murder of Richard Mladenik. These are just newspaper reports at this stage, however, and no charges have ever been laid in Carl's murder other than those against Matthew Johnson, who maintains he acted alone. Carl's funeral was held on the 30th of April 2010 at St Teresa's Catholic Church in Essendon, the same church Lewis and Mark Moran had their services. The girlfriends had all disappeared by now, scared off by the media attention. Only Roberta remained, although she had since moved on. A number of Carl's childhood friends attended, alongside his dad, George. Carl was buried in a deja vu-inducing $50,000 gold coffin. In 2012, the Victorian Ombudsman released a critical report of Corrections Victoria after their investigation into the circumstances of Carl's death. This led to a pair of high-profile resignations in the following months, that of Department of Justice Secretary Penny Armitage and Corrections Victorian Commissioner Bob Hastings. The character of Carl Williams was captured by actor Guyton Grandley in the Underbelly series and subsequent sequels. Carl wasn't a fan of his depiction, saying they made him look like an idiot. Some said the performance was on the money. Others agreed with Carl, he was much smarter and friendlier. Whatever the case, one thing about Carl was clear. He believed he'd done what he had to to protect his family. He had no remorse for killing the Morans or anyone else. They deserved it as far as he was concerned. The law thought otherwise, and police fostered a relationship with him to try and bring others to justice. In the end, jail and the company Carl kept served it up to him instead. Roberta, who's had a number of media appearances since, said she regrets everything that took place during that time in her life, and now wants nothing but happiness for their daughter Dakota, who shouldn't have to grow up living with the sins of her father. Whether Carl's murder was merciless or in some twisted kind of way, mercy in itself is by the by. He's gone now, and those who could have benefited from him sticking around, be it family or the police, no longer can. The same can't be said for his mate Tony, who now spends his days in Barwon Prison. Tony's had a mixed run, enjoying the positives of having his cocaine trafficking conviction overturned in late 2020 off the back of the Lawyer X scandal. 
when it was made public that barrister Nicola Gobbo had become a registered police informant and passed information on to police about a number of her clients. Tony, being one of these, pounced and successfully took a step closer to freedom. He still has a number of years left to serve on other convictions, however, but those could have easily been cut short when on February 11th, 2009, Tony was stabbed repeatedly by two other inmates. The attack by two members of the G-Fam was carried out with improvised chips made from wire and forks. Tony had his teeth knocked out, was stabbed several times, suffered displacement of his brain and multiple skull fractures. The life-threatening injuries could have killed him had he not received swift medical attention after a couple of other prisoners came to his aid to try and stop the attack. This all happened after a prison birthday party that was being held in which Tony had interacted seemingly amicably with at least one of his attackers. But the catalyst for it was again said to be a newspaper article published the day before which noted Tony as a top enforcer within the jail, a prison bigwig who had disrupted an extortion racket run by Pacific Islanders in Barwon. A prison officer heard one of Tony's attackers yell, this is what you get for talking to the screws, you fucking dog. You think you're an enforcer? Well, you are fucking not. For now, Tony's back to his usual Groundhog Day inside Barwon, under constant and hopefully better surveillance than his mate Carr was, eating much healthier meals of rice, tuna, tomato and cucumber. And while he was the bigwig on the outside when it came to the drug trade, it was with Carl Williams that the Melbourne gangland killings began and concluded. Okay, we made it. Um, Let's move on to our thoughts. So um, I guess that's pretty much my thought. I am feeling so yuck at the lifestyle that these people had and I said it before that the things that they were willing to do for power and money, and that's, to me, literally what this was all about, potentially slightly different motivations in the sense of the kind of power and kind of money they wanted, but just the disposable way that they treated people and whatever was in their way. Um, I think I'm... Glad to not have to think of these people much more after we release this one for a little while at least. So that's pretty much my thoughts. Do you, what are yours? Yeah, mine are very similar and they probably bleed into my happy thought as well, which is just that, uh, that you know, we could sort of put this series behind us now and move on to uh, some other things. But, uh, look, it's been it's been uh, very interesting to dive into it and tell the story and, and hopefully a uh, an interesting, uh, captivating sort of way and from start to finish. You know, I yeah. think a lot, people have heard a lot of bits and pieces of all these little storylines, but maybe not the whole thing kind of weaved together from start to finish. So hopefully everyone's gotten something out of this. Mm. Uh, so, that I mean, that's my thought on this and also my happy thought. I can't use Brooklyn Nine-Nine anymore. Apparently you... <laughs> no, you've used it so many times. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realise. Um, but uh, So I'm, I'm done on that front. But uh, <laughs> what's your happy thought? Um, mine is that I'm going to the Melbourne International Comedy Festival tonight. So, um, obviously didn't get to do it last year and it's something my husband and I really like. We always try to go to a few shows every year and, um, I'm just really excited for it. So that's on, um, I'm going to two shows tonight and then one on Sunday. I got a bit carried away, but I can't wait. Excellent. Enjoy. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime Podcast. 
And you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link's in the show notes. Over there, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed and get all of our bonus content. You can also get ad-free regular episodes, early release when possible. And I think the Chopper episode went down pretty well uh, last week close. So that one is up for everyone Mm. to hear if they're interested. And we'll be back with you all again shortly. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.